Well, we are finishing up the Sermon on the Mount, and today we are going to be continuing through the final contrast at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where we are going to be confronted with the question that you see on the screen before you, which is, is your eternity built on the rock of Israel? Now, I want you to recall that we have been in the series of four contrasts right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where we are being confronted with either or regarding our eternal destiny. And so if you recall with me, back in Matthew seven thirteen through 14, Jesus taught that there was only two ways or two roads, the narrow road that leads to salvation through faith in Christ and all other roads, the broad, the broad path that leads to destruction. Well, then you see in Matthew seven fifteen through 20 that at the end of the day, there's only two types of trees, those that bear fruit because they belong to Christ by faith and those that don't bear any fruit and will be burned up. Well, last time in Matthew seven twenty one through 23, we saw that at the judgment day, there's going to be two sets of claims. There'll be those who are unbelievers who will claim, Jesus, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do that in your name? But Jesus' counterclaim will be, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now we come to our fourth contrast today in verses 24 through 27, where we see that there's only two types of builders. And I think, again, Jesus' point is evangelistic, that at the end of the day that there are only two types of people in the world, those who will build on Christ, the rock, and everyone else who has some other plan who will build on the sand. And I think the reason why Jesus may be using the building metaphor here as his final example is think about it, building A home requires planning. You have to plan where your home is going to be, what you're going to make of it, how you're going to build it, etc. And I think Jesus' metaphor here of using the building is really asking us, his readers, his audience, to consider how we're building our eternal future. At the end of the day, if you're going to build on the rock, that is messianic salvation, you have a glorious future. You're going to have everlasting life. But if you're going to build on something else, Jesus assures us today that it's just building on sand. When the judgment comes, it will indeed be washed away. And so that's his point here. Now today, we pick it up here in the first two verses of this section, verses 24 through 25, where we see Jesus calling again his followers to build their eternal lives on his word. Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Now, the first thing I want to point out, dear ones, in this text is notice the therefore. Here we have an inferential conjunction, and I think it may be that Jesus is reaching a summary at least of the section that he's just taught us, but perhaps a summary of the entire Sermon on the Mount. And so notice the summary is what? Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them is like a wise man. Now, the first thing I want to talk about is that idea of hearing. I've probably mentioned this ad nauseum to some of you. You've heard me talk about the idea of hearing quite a bit because we've been in the book of Proverbs. But in the Bible, oftentimes hearing has to do with more than just hearing sounds go through the eardrum, but it incorporates two things. It's the idea of hearing with, number one, understanding, and number two, belief. That's the idea. And so, for example, remember Deuteronomy 6.4, the famous Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. The Israelites were to do more than just hear the sound waves go through their eardrums. They were to understand and believe that there was no other God except Yahweh, the God of Israel. Or think about John 10, 27. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And later on in that verse, he says, they follow me. It means they understand and they believe. Therefore, they follow Jesus. Uh, We saw it last week in Proverbs 4, where if a son really understands and believes what his earthly father says, he'll act on those words. And so that's the idea. And so here, what are we to understand and believe, if that's our understanding of hearing, our understanding of it? Well, we're to hear the words of Jesus. Notice he says, the words of mine. 
Now, what's interesting is Jesus, in some sense, can be seen as the source of Scripture. The Holy Spirit certainly is the third person, the Trinity, who inspires the biblical author. But in some sense, the Scripture is a Trinitarian affair. Think about Jesus himself is referred to as the very Word of God, the Word incarnate. Remember John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, I remember a seminary professor some years ago gave an interesting analogy to me. He said, think about the Word is both truly God and truly man, thinking of Jesus. Well, isn't that the way our scriptures are? They're truly of God, and they're truly man as well. That's the way the scriptures are. And so think about Jesus is sometimes seen as the author of scripture. Uh, think about Romans ten seventeen: Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, one of the debates in that text, does the word of Christ mean a word about Christ or a word that comes from Christ? Yes, it's both. It's a word that comes from him and a word that is about him. Now, where does the Holy Spirit come in? Well, Jesus ascends into the heavens and he sends the Holy Spirit. And according to John 14, 26, the role of the Holy Spirit was to bring to remembrance to the apostles all that Jesus had said. And so, yes, the Holy Spirit is certainly the one who inspires the biblical author so that we may be given the very words of Christ. Now, not only are we to hear, therefore, understand and believe his words, but we are to act on them. The term act there, poieo, can literally be rendered do. We are to do the word. Now, here you see another relationship, as I've mentioned, I think, in the previous message, between faith, which is synonymous here with hearing, and the idea of acting on what you believe. If you don't act on what you believe, well, then you don't really believe it. Again, in Proverbs 4, last week we saw that if a son, an earthly son, won't listen to his earthly father, he never acts on his word. But if he really understands what his father is saying and really believes it, he's going to act on it. That's the same idea here. That if you really believe in the word of Christ, you're going to be the one who acts upon that word. And if you do so, notice the comparison. You will be compared to a wise man who did what? Who built his house on the rock. Now, here's the point, I think, of the comparison there. Think about the rock and how important that was in building in ancient Israel. Ancient Israel did have, to a certain degree, a Bedouin culture. And many of the people who built a home in the Bedouin culture would know that if you built your home on the foundation of sand next to, for example, a wadi, a wadi, member is a little tributary that during the wet season has water in it but normally is dry, well, think about it. If a huge thunderstorm would come, those wadis would flood. And any Bedouin who built their home merely on sand would have their home washed away. So it was incumbent upon them to build on a solid foundation, namely rock. And so that's what Jesus is picking up on. Now, I also think Jesus may be building off of a theme that in the Old Testament we see that the wise man is one who builds on the rock. In particular, I think the rock, and I'll show you this in our application, is a reference to the messianic salvation that God promises. And so let me give you an example of this. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah 28, verses 15 through 16. Again, please turn your Bibles to Isaiah 28, verses 15 through 16. Now, we'll come again to this text in our application but one of the passages that may have been in the mind of Jesus as he was teaching this final message on the Sermon on the Mount would have been this very passage. Now, one of the reasons I believe that may be the case is in Isaiah, again, turn to 28, 15 through 16, the common theme is that Isaiah is talking about a flood of the Assyrian army, and the only way to be spared from that flood is to build on the rock. And I think that may be in the mind of Jesus, and you'll see some similarities. Notice here in Isaiah 28, 15, here, this is the Lord speaking through Isaiah. He said, because you have said, so stop there for just a moment, the Lord is representing the view of the people of Judah. And he's going to be a little tongue-in-cheek with the way he handles their view. He'll kind of show that he doesn't think much of their view. He says, because you have said... Now, this is their view. We have made a covenant with death, 
and with Sheol we have made a pact. Stop there. Notice whatever covenant that they made, the Lord thought it was no more than a covenant with Sheol and death itself. Now, what was going on? Remember in 701 BC, the leading army of the time was the Assyrians. They were nasty buggers. They would destroy everything that they came across. Well, they came across the people of Judah like a flood over their land. And the quandary for the people of God, Judah at the time, was were they going to trust in the rock, in Yahweh? Or were they going to trust in nothing but mere sand to keep the analogy with Jesus by trusting in an alliance with a nation? Well, of course, being sinners like us, Judah chooses to make an alliance with Egypt. Egypt is going to protect them against the Assyrian marauders. And so God says, well, that's nothing more than a pact with death itself. Why? Because they can't protect you. So notice he says, he continues their boast. It goes on to say that the overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by. For we, again, they're boasting, we have made falsehood our refuge and we have concealed ourselves with deception. Again, God is deriding their boast. Now, notice the term there, the, the phrase overwhelming scourge. The term overwhelming there, shataf, is the term for flood. The term for scourge is shoot. It's the term for a, a whip. So you literally have a flooding whip. God is mixing metaphors here. So what's the point of the mixed metaphor of a flooding whip? Well, it's a flood because as the, whether it was the Assyrians or later the Babylonians came from the north, it would be like a flood of soldiers who came across their land and they devastated everything. But the mixed metaphor with the whip, literally you could render it a flooding whip, was I think they functioned as God's whip of chastisement against the people. But nonetheless, what God is saying is don't think that the covenant with the nations is going to save you. Notice verse 16, what would save them? It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone. Here's the rock. A tested stone. A costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. So here the stone that's laid in Zion are the promises of God. I think in particular focused on the Davidic promises. What's the culmination, by the way, of the Davidic promises? It's the Messiah. And I'll show you that's how Paul understood this text later in our application. So think about Isaiah. Isaiah is saying, hey, if you want to be protected from this flood of the Assyrians, don't build your house on sand, making an alliance with the nations, trust in the rock. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying to us here today. In fact, notice in verse 25, he talks about what will happen if you are built on the rock and yet the storm comes. He says the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall. Why? For it had been founded on the rock. Now, dear ones, here the flood and the storm that's being depicted, you can think of that perhaps as the various storms of life. That's how some scholars consider it. And the idea is that if you are founded on messianic salvation, the storms of life will not bully you over. But here, I think probably the ultimate intention of Jesus is to refer to the final judgment. The final judgment is often likened to the flood. And the idea is when the eschatological judgment comes, you're going to be in sound footing because you've built on the Messiah, the rock. That's the idea that I think Jesus is conveying here. Now, with that, whereas we saw in the last two verses, the wise man builds on messianic salvation, the rock, every fool builds on something else. Notice he says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came. And the winds blew and slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now, dear ones, notice here in verse 26, you see the lack of genuine faith. Yes, it appeared that these people who are unbelievers heard, but notice they didn't act on the words of Christ. They didn't do them. They weren't obedient to the doctrines of Christ. And therefore, they were nothing more 
than the foolish man. The foolish man who does what? Well, builds his house merely on the sand. Again, think about the Israelite culture. The Bedouin, he builds his home on sand. That's his foundation. The massive thunderstorm comes up in the otherwise arid topography of Israel. The wadi floods and his home is washed away. That's the problem with building on the sand. They didn't build on the rock. And that would have been known by, again, the average Israelite living in that day. So notice here in verse 27, the same storm comes, but what's the result of it? The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against the house, and it fell. And in fact, great was its fall. Now again, I think the reference to the flood here is not simply the mere storms of life here and now. Certainly it can apply to that. But I think certainly Jesus probably has in mind the ultimate judgment that will one day come. Not that we are going to be flooded again. No, the next judgment comes but by fire. But the idea is that the flood, and for that matter, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, functioned as what we refer to as exemplary judgments. And the idea behind an exemplary judgment is that every time a person sins now, God does not immediately judge that sinner. Well, you might come away with that fact, with a false notion that somehow God is not displeased with sin, that God will never judge it. You might come away with that. But what the exemplary judgment says is that one day God will, in fact, intervene and judge sinners again, just as he has done in the past. By the way, Bob did a wonderful Sunday school on that topic years ago. You could probably find it in our archive. We were still back, I think, in the Fick Auditorium. And he did a whole Sunday school all about exemplary judgments. But let me show you how the New Testament writers used the exemplary judgments like the flood. Turn your Bibles to 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 7. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Please turn your Bibles there. Now, as you're turning to 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 7, think about, too, how Jesus will later use the idea of the flood in the book of Matthew as a reference to his judgment that comes when he comes. In fact, he says in Matthew 24, 37, that his parousia, his coming, will be just like the days of Noah. So what's the point? That is, in the days of Noah, those who didn't listen to the preaching of Noah, as it were, through the building of the ark, they didn't repent and believe the flood suddenly came upon them and destroyed them. It was sudden. Well, that's the way it's going to be at the return of Christ. Not that a flood is coming, but judgment's coming. And for those that aren't in Christ, it's going to be sudden destruction on them. So notice here, Second Peter 3. As another example, remember Peter's dealing with these rascals who don't believe that Jesus is ever coming back. They can live any way they want. Notice what he says about them, these scoffers. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, he says, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? Stop there. Notice the term coming. That's the term parousia. The term parousia, when it's used of Jesus Christ, it is reserved for his second coming. If that term is used, it's used 24 times in the New Testament, 17 times for Jesus. Each time it's used of Jesus, it's the second coming. You can go to the bank on that one. So he's referring to these people who are doubting that he's coming again. And what's their argument? Notice their argument says this, Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. That's their slogan. They're saying. Notice verse 5, Peter comments. He says, For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Stop there. Does everyone see that he mentions the flood? The flood, that destruction, is an exemplary judgment. What Peter is saying is, hey, they fail to notice these mockers that, yes, God did judge all sinners in the past, and that serves as a down payment or like earnest money showing that God will do it again in the future. And notice verse 7, he says, by his word, that's God's word, 
The present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. So yes, God is not going to flood the earth again, but he will destroy it by fire. And the flood serves as a reminder that, yes, God will judge again. I think that that's probably Jesus' point. Let me pull up my pointer again. That's, oops, I hit the wrong button. That's what he's doing right here, talking about the floods. He's saying that, yes, this judgment will come, and if you're built on the sand, you have some other plan other than faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, you'll be washed away. But if you're going to found yourself in your eternal planning on the foundation of the rock, the Messiah, your building will stand. You'll have everlasting life. That's the idea that Jesus is conveying here. Now, with that, let's come to our applications. I have two of them for you this morning. Number one, I think we have to understand the rich messianic imagery behind the rock in the Scriptures. What I'm going to show you is that the rock stands as a metaphor for the provision of what the Messiah, the second person of the Trinity before his incarnation, was providing for the Israelites in the wilderness. So what I'm going to show you is that we see in the Old Testament that the rock was an image or a symbol of Yahweh's provision, of Yahweh's second, his mediation. Third, that Yahweh was the refuge of Israel. And number four, that he was the rock of salvation that should be trusted in. So four things. Again, the rock symbolized the fact that Yahweh provided Number two, that Yahweh would mediate. Number three, that he was the rock of refuge, Yahweh was, and that he was the rock of salvation that could be trusted in. And so I'm going to lay that out for you. I think it's important for us to see some of the rich Old Testament imagery that I think Jesus is certainly building on. Number two, we must understand that all who trust upon the rock will never be disappointed. And we'll talk about that term disappointed. What does it mean to be really disappointed? But we'll talk about that. Okay, so first of all, I want you to see that the Old Testament does portray the God of Israel, Yahweh, oftentimes in Scripture, as the rock. And we know that the Messiah, pre-incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, is himself Yahweh. Jesus declares that in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. Now, I want you to see that this idea of the rock motif, the symbolism of it, I think begins in the Exodus. Recall that in Exodus 17.3, the people of Israel had grumbled against Yahweh. Why? Because here Moses led them out of Egypt, and yet when they were in the wilderness, they didn't have any food or water. And so, of course, God was going to have to miraculously provide for them. So in Exodus 17.3, the people are grumbling. They're saying, Moses, why did you lead us out of Egypt? At least we had something to eat and drink there. Now there's nothing for our cattle or our children or us to drink. So they're grumbling. But notice here in Exodus 17, 6 is the provision from the rock. Exodus 17, 6, the Lord said to Moses, he said, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now notice here God's plan. He tells Moses, that he was going to stand on the rock at Horeb. Horeb was another name for Mount Sinai. That's where that is. And so notice what's the plan. Well, the plan is that Moses is to strike the rock. And of course, the rock does not normally provide water. This is going to be a miraculous provision provided by Yahweh. That's what it is. It's a miraculous provision that comes from him, but the rock is symbolic again, as we're going to find out, of the work of the Messiah, the second person, the Trinity, who was in fact Yahweh, who was on the scene of history at this time, who is the angel of Yahweh. Isn't he the one that led the people through the wilderness and protected them? Yes, he was there. Wasn't he the one that fed the people, the manna from heaven? And that's why in John 6, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, if you come to him by faith, you're going to be given everlasting life. Why? Why? because he could give life to the Israelites in the wilderness. 
And so you see, not only is he the bread of life, not only is he the angel of Yahweh who protected Israel, but he is behind the miraculous provision with the striking of the rock. And I don't think it should go lost on us that 1,500 years after Moses said this, Jesus, the rock, was struck on the cross and he provided the ultimate provision, which is atonement, not for just temporary life, but everlasting life. And I think we see that typology all the way through the Old Testament. Now, this whole rock motif continues when we get to Numbers chapter 20, verse 8. Again, the people are grumbling. In fact, they're at the waters of Meribah. The idea of the Meribah is they grumbled. And notice here they're complaining again that they have nothing to drink. What's the battle plan this time? Well, the Lord says to Moses, Numbers 20, verse 8, he says, Take the rod, and you and your brother assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. Now this time, notice Moses is not to strike the rock, he is to speak to the rock. And notice it's very important that he is to do this before their eyes, the eyes of the congregation. By the way, previously in Exodus 17, both of these miracles are done publicly. They're done publicly, the miraculous provision that Yahweh gives. But if you remember the rest of the story, Moses doesn't simply speak to the rock as God commanded, did he? He ends up striking the rock twice in a fit of anger. Now, from that, remember, the Lord says to Moses, because you have not revered my name before the people, you will not lead this people into the promised land. And I think some have wrongly concluded that the reason why God prevented Moses from going into the promised land was simply because he had problems with anger. It wasn't anger per se. It was the fact that he took the clear word of God that was given before the people, and he thought so lightly of it that he just made his own modifications. And the Lord is saying, if you're going to treat me that lightly and not as holy before the people and weighty, then you're not bringing the people in to the promised land. It was because Moses treated God's word lightly. So again, he ends up striking the rock, but the Lord provided anyway. The provision wasn't dependent upon the formula of Moses or any man. The provision came from Yahweh alone. This was a miraculous provision that in both cases, the people were given drink from a rock. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 4. Please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, because here I do believe that the Apostle Paul is commenting on what we have just read regarding the symbolism of the rock. And again, Yahweh is the one who's doing the provision, but he's using the symbolism to look forward to the Messiah. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. Notice here what Paul says to the Corinthians. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. Now, stop there for just a moment in verse 3. What's Paul's point with the Corinthians? The problem, and Bob will get into much greater detail than I can get into here, one of the problems that the Corinthians had is that they were boasting in being spiritual. They boasted in being the eschatological people. And the problem is they were living an idolatrous lifestyle. Remember later on in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, you can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. They were engaged in idolatry, weren't they? So what he's saying is, well, wait a minute. You're boasting, you Corinthians, in having baptism and the Lord's Supper. And because you have baptism and the Lord's Supper, you think everything's fine. What he says here in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 3 is, didn't Israel have those same things? Didn't they have a form of baptism? Yes, they were baptized through the Red Sea. Didn't they have a form of the Lord's Supper? Yes, the Lord provided for them in the wilderness, and yet they fell. 
They had the Lord's Supper and they had baptism, and yet they fell. Why? Because they engaged in idolatry. Here, here, you Corinthian rascals, don't keep engaging in idolatry. That's the idea. But notice the point that he makes in verse 4. He says, and all, he's talking about the Israelites, they drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Here we have an apostle who is affirming that, yes, it was Yahweh who was providing for them, but, yes, the symbolism of the rock was pointing people to Christ. It's not as if Paul somehow became a pantheist and said, oh, by the way, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, pre-incarnate, was dwelling in a rock. No, the idea was that the second person, the Trinity, who is Yahweh, was the one who was providing the drink for the people miraculously, and he used the symbolism of the rock. It was the rock who provided the people so that they may live. Isn't that exactly what Jesus is saying today in Matthew chapter 7, if you build your home upon the rock, you're going to live. That's the connection that I think Jesus is borrowing from. Now, let's move on here. We also see not only was the rock of Israel the one who provided for Israel, he was the one who mediated for them. What is the, why do you need a mediator? What's the point of it? Well, because you and I are sinful. We cannot be in the presence of a holy and righteous God. We need a mediator. Well, Moses found this out in Exodus 33, where we see that graciously God put him in the cleft of a rock to mediate so that Moses could see something of God's glory. Do you recall that in Exodus 33:18, Moses requested from God that he would see something of his glory? But right away, the Lord qualifies what Moses could see. Exodus 33:20, the Lord says, you cannot see my face, panay, you can't see my face and live. The face of God represented his essence. That Moses could not see the essence of God's glory. That's the idea. Why? Because no one can see God in his essence and live. So the battle plan here is that there's going to be a mediation so Moses can see something of God. Exodus 33, 21 through 23, it says, Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you, that's Moses, shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now, first of all, notice that he was to stand, that is Moses, on the rock. There it's probably referring to again Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. That's where Yahweh met him. But somewhere at Mount Sinai, wherever this was on the mountain, there was a cleft, probably a crevice, that Moses could kind of squirm himself into. And the idea is that if he would be in this rock and covered, notice, by Yahweh's hand, the idea is that he could see something of God's glory, that he would not be stuffed out, even though Sinful human beings are incompatible with being in the presence of a holy God because of the mediation of the rock, again, a symbolism of Yahweh's mediation. Moses was allowed to see, notice on the screen, the achor, the back side of the glory of God. He never saw his face, the panay. He never saw the essence of God's glory. As one theologian said, what he saw was the glory caboose. It wasn't God in his essence. But without the mediation provided by the hand of Yahweh in the cleft of the rock, Moses would have even died of that. Brothers and sisters, does not the New Testament say in 1 Timothy 2.5 that there is one mediator between God and man? It's the man Christ Jesus. It's the rock. That's the idea. And so we see this idea of mediation coming from the rock. Not only did the rock provide, the rock mediated. That's a symbol of what the second person of the Trinity does. Now, let's come to David and realize that if we're talking about Yahweh being the rock of refuge for the people of Israel, we could look at the Psalms and be here all day. 
But for the sake of time, let's think about how David was spared from the wrath of Saul. We read about that in 2 Samuel 22. Saul wanted to murder David. But when finally David was spared from Saul's wrath, he sang this beautiful song. Notice what he said. 2 Samuel 22, 2-3, he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, is whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. Dear ones, who was it that delivered David from the violence of Saul? It was the Lord, his rock. And what we have to affirm here is that David knew that apart from Yahweh's divine, miraculous intervention in his life, he would have been put to death by Saul and the enemies of God. He would have died. It was Yahweh alone who was able to deliver him and protect him. Dear brothers and sisters, each one of us, if we relate this to Matthew 7 today, we need the rock of salvation, a rock of refuge to deliver us from the coming wrath as well. The only way that any of us will be delivered from the ultimate enemy, that is the wrath of God, is if you and I are delivered by the rock. Now notice here, we see that the rock is also a symbol of Yahweh who is worthy of our trust. And going back to the book of Isaiah, one thing I want you to realize is that Isaiah constantly had to fight with the people of Israel and the people of Judah saying, don't trust in the nations, trust in Yahweh. Trust in your rock. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles to show this, Isaiah 26, 1 through 3. Please turn your Bibles to Isaiah 26, 1 through 3. And you're going to see the need to trust in the rock of Israel. Isaiah 26, 1 through 3. Now, as you're turning there, remember, this is a section of Scripture. It's in what's called the little apocalypse of Isaiah. And I do believe that this has to do with a lot of eschatological events that we see even in the book of Revelation. So I think what we're reading about here is something that's ultimately fulfilled in the future millennial kingdom. This is beautiful. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 26, 1 through 3. Notice it says, In that day, what day? Well, I think it's in the future day of the Lord. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. Notice their boast in their song. They say, We have a strong city. He sets up walls and ramparts for security. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the one that remains faithful. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Dear ones, notice the phrase there in verse 1, we have a strong city. That is in contrast with what you see in Isaiah 24.10, the city of chaos. There are two cities in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 24.10, it's the city of chaos, which is Babylon. That will be thrown down. But in Isaiah 26.1, the strong city is Jerusalem. That will be established. And so this song that you're singing about is going to be our song. Because this is going to be in the millennial kingdom. And you know that the moment you trusted in Jesus Christ, the rock of Israel, you were grafted into the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so that city, that strong city, is your city too. No longer are you going to have to tolerate the city that has the homeless murdering people on the street. No longer will you have to tolerate the rioting and the looting and the murder. You're going to have a strong city. And so that's why you and I are going to be crying out in this great song, Isaiah 26, 4, Trust in Yahweh forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. It's because of what the Messiah does that you and I are going to have an established city forevermore. No more crime, no more hatred that's going to be tolerated of Yahweh. In fact, in Zechariah 14, the nations that will still exist, if they do not go up and worship the Lord, he won't send rain upon their land. Can you imagine? It's no longer going to be, well, I think it says this, and well, I think it says that. No, Yahweh will be on the scene saying, this is what it says. There'll be no more rebellion that will be tolerated. The Lord will be there, and what a day. We have an everlasting rock that will provide that. What a day that will be. Now, 
Again, throughout the book of Isaiah, Israel is challenged to trust in Yahweh, not in foreign alliances like Egypt. And I want you to think about it. I'm going to put up Isaiah 28:16 again. In Isaiah's day, the great force that came against Israel was Assyria. And again, the Israelites had a, ch- a choice. Are you going to build your house on the sand to relate it to Matthew 7? Are you going to trust in the nations? Or are you going to trust in Yahweh, the rock? Are you going to build your house on the sand? Or is it going to be on the rock? Again, the Lord promised, Isaiah 28, 16, He said, Therefore, thus says the Lord, God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. The Lord told the Israelites, that they shouldn't trust in the nations. They should trust in what? The stone that was laid in Zion. Now, precisely what is this stone laid in Zion? I do believe it's a reference to the Davidic promises. And the reason why is what God had promised, for example, in 2 Samuel 7.16, is that he would establish David's throne forever. So naturally, if an assault came against David's throne, like from the Assyrians, God was obligated to overthrow that. That is if the people would trust in him instead of trusting in the nations. Notice if you trusted in the stone that was laid in Zion, you would not be disturbed. The term kush there probably has to do with being put to panic. You wouldn't have to be put to panic. Why? Because the rock of Israel would fight for you. The second person, the Trinity, who would one day come, the stone laid in Zion, he would fight on your behalf. Lo and behold, what do we see that happened in history? The year 701 B.C. rolls around. The Assyrians come under Sennacherib. He's the leader of the nation. And they surround Jerusalem. And do you remember that they had a spokesman? And he brings a letter that ends up making it into the hands of Hezekiah, the king of Israel, the king of Judah. And you remember, Hezekiah takes the note and he brings it in before the Lord in the temple. And he basically, if I could paraphrase, he says, Lord, you've seen what this pagan has said, that he's going to wipe us out. Well, he prays over that note that he got from the Assyrians. And he receives a word from the Lord through the prophet Isaiah that the plan of the Assyrians would not stand. Do you know what happens the next day when Hezekiah wakes up? According to Isaiah chapter 37, there were 185,000 dead Assyrians. All dead. Gone. How did it happen? By the rock of Israel. The rock of Israel had no problem finishing them off once and for all. Don't trust in sand. Don't make an alliance with Egypt How does it relate to today? Don't become a Jehovah Witness. Don't become a Mormon. Don't become a Buddhist. Don't become a Muslim. Don't remain an atheist. Don't engage in some other plan. Your own goodness, your own works. Don't build on the sand. Don't trust in Egypt. Build on the rock. Not only is the rock the one who mediates and spares us from our sins, but he's the greatest warrior of all time who will one day subdue all the enemies of God. That's who he is. That's why he's worthy of our trust. He's the rock who provided the water. He's the rock who mediated for Moses. He's the rock of refuge for David that prevented his death so that we would have the Davidic promises. And he is the rock who intervened, killing 185,000 Assyrians in one day. Do you know that the Egyptians even recognize that this happened? And the Egyptians tried to attribute that miracle to their own God? You can read about that in Herodotus. It's so funny. Isn't that great of the Egyptian God to help out the Israelites by smiting all of the Assyrians? It shows you how nations will embellish their own false God and try to detract from the glory of the rock of Israel. Brothers and sisters, I think this is what Jesus was building on when he said, come to the rock, build your house on the rock. Paul quotes here from Isaiah 28, 16. I'll leave you with this in the gospel. Notice what Paul says as he's answering the thorny question, what happened to Israel? 
Why didn't they have salvation from the rock, the Messiah? Well, notice what he says, Romans 9, 31 through 33. Paul says, but Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. Stop there. The law of righteousness did, in fact, reveal the way of salvation. Does not the law, Torah, Genesis 15, 6, declare that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness? It does say that. In fact, that's exactly what Paul says is the plan of justification when he teaches that in Romans 4. But the Israelites pursued the law as if it were by works of the law rather than by the Messiah who was promised to come in the law. And so that's why Paul, now citing from Isaiah 8.14, says they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Stop there. They stumbled over the rock. The rock the Messiah had provided for them. He mediated for them. He was their rock of refuge. He was their rock of salvation. But they wouldn't trust in him. They were going to trust in sand. They were going to go it alone. They had a works-based righteousness, a self-made righteousness. They were spiritual do-it-yourselfers. You know the guys that, when you talk about physical do-it-yourselfers, they go to the hardware store. My grandpa always used to say when we do a project, let's first go to the hardware store three times and then we'll get started because you never got the right stuff the first couple of times. That's okay to be a physical do-it-yourselfer, but if you're a spiritual do-it-yourselfer, you're going to stumble on the stone. And notice he goes on to say, now in verse 33, he cites from Isaiah 28, 16. He says, just as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Notice what is the only plan of salvation. It's by faith. It's by believing. And if you believe in Jesus, the rock of Israel, you are not going to be disappointed. The term there, kataiskuno, literally means you will not be put to shame. Meaning, when the flood comes, as it were, the great eschatological judgment, you're not going to be ashamed. You're going to be the one that's vindicated. You're not going to be the one that has everything wiped out in your poor planning. You're the one who's never going to be disappointed because you have resurrection unto eternal life, reigning with God and the saints in a glorious kingdom. That's the plan that Paul is saying has always been the plan of salvation. It's always been by faith alone in the rock alone. Let me give you the the gospel. I always tell people when I give the gospel that the good news of the gospel, I think, only makes sense in light of the bad news. The Bible reveals both. And it's important that it reveals both because otherwise we don't know what we're being saved from. The bad news is that all of us, me, you, everyone that's ever lived, has sinned and rebelled against God in thought, word, and deed. And we don't have to ask people tricky questions to get them to admit it. The Bible declares it. Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The news gets even worse when we consider that the wages of our rebellion is death. The first death is a separation of body and soul. Our soul goes into the ground and our, excuse me, our body goes into the ground and our soul If we're a believer, yes, it goes to be with the Lord, but if we're not, it goes to a place called Hades. That's the first death. But there's a second death in which people will be separated from God forevermore in the lake of fire. That's the worst news that I could ever think of, that we're rebels against God who is all-powerful and that he'll throw us into the lake of fire forever. Why? Because that's what we deserve. But that's precisely where the good news of the gospel shines. The good news is that God sent forth the Son. The Son who existed as God and with God, as the second person of the Trinity, who was active in the provision and protection of Israel, at a point in time through a virgin birth became a man, so that he was both truly God and truly man in one person, so that he could live the perfect life that none of us could, so that by faith in him his righteousness could be credited to our account, But Jesus didn't just simply live the perfect life. He also died a substitutionary death. Jesus the just on behalf of us the unjust in order that we might be brought to God. 
Jesus took upon himself the full measure of God's wrath and paid it off at the cross so that you and I wouldn't have to be punished eternally in the lake of fire. The proof that Jesus accomplished these things, that he lived the perfect life, that he died a substitutionary death, is proven by the fact that on the third day after his bodily death, he was bodily raised from the dead. This Jesus ascended into the heavens where he's seated at the right hand of God from where he's coming again to bring a glorious kingdom and a resurrection for his people, but resurrection and judgment upon his enemies. What must we do? Well, we saw today Jesus tell us that we are to build upon the rock. Jesus commands every single person to repent. In Mark 1.15, he says, repent and believe the gospel. That's what it means to build your eternal plan upon the rock. Today is the day to repent and turn from idolatry, turn from sin and rebellion, and turn to God in his terms, which is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Today, if you will trust upon Jesus, you will be like the wise man who, when the storm comes of the judgment day, you won't be washed away. Your building will last forever because you built on the rock. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you've been clear that there's one way to salvation, that there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. We thank you for this truth that Jesus is the rock. We pray, Heavenly Father, for our friends, our loved ones, our coworkers that we love so dearly, but they've made some other arrangement. They're building on sand, and we love them. We don't want to see them perish. We pray, Lord, that you would give us opportunity Prepare their hearts for us, Lord, that they may be regenerated. We pray that you'd give us words to say to them so that they may repent and trust in Christ for salvation. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would do this through us and for us. We pray also, Heavenly Father, that we'd be those who live lives that are pleasing to you, that you would enable us to persevere until the day that you come for us and establish the glorious kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.